from Ground Zero Radio, this is Democracy Now in Exile. I want to thank you for the seeds you planted in me. I want to thank you for the earth that roots my feet. And I say, I want to thank you for the sun that greens my leaves. Yes. Today, one of the leading progressive voices in music, hip-hop artist and activist Michael Franti on the failures of the music community in a time of war and his new song, Bomb the World. Yasser Arafat appeals to Palestinians to halt all armed activity in the occupied territories. The Indian government threatens to take action against fellow nuclear power Pakistan after last week's suicide attack on the Indian parliament. And the domestic crackdown on civil liberties continues. All that and more coming up. Welcome to the War and Peace Report, broadcasting just blocks from the first ground zero. Afghanistan is the second. I'm Amy Goodman. The surviving remnants of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda yesterday fled across frozen mountaintops in a bloody rout that left hundreds of them dead. Pro-Western Mujahideen commanders declared they had captured all the caves used by al-Qaeda fighters and had liberated Afghanistan of foreign terrorists. But despite weeks of rumors that he was hiding inside the Tora Bora caves, there was no sign of bin Laden yesterday. U.S. warplanes continued to stage overnight raids in Tora Bora and injured several U.S.-allied Afghan fighters. Three Marines were wounded by a landmine yesterday at the airport outside Kandahar as they worked to clear an airport building of mines and U.S. cluster bombs. The men were quickly evacuated to the field hospital at Camp Rhino in southern Afghanistan. One of them, who lost his leg below the knee when he stepped on the mine, was evacuated to an Air Force hospital in the Persian Gulf area. Meanwhile, War Secretary Donald Rumsfeld held talks at the Kabul Air Base with the new head of the Afghan interim government, Hamid Karzai, during the highest level U.S. visit to the country in more than 20 years. Rumsfeld assured him that the U.S. had no territorial ambitions in sending its military to Afghanistan. Palestinian President Yasser Arafat last night made an impassioned televised appeal to Palestinians to halt armed attacks on Israeli civilians. Israel's tanks were parked only 200 yards from his Ramallah headquarters. Arafat denied buckling before the might of Israel's military offensive launched last Thursday or to the mounting pressure for him to crack down on militants, saying terrorist attacks had violated the Palestinians' own national interest. Over the weekend, Israeli soldiers killed seven people in raids on more than four communities in the occupied territories. Israeli tanks and bulldozers carried out their biggest housing demolition of the Antifada at Khan Yunis and the Gaza Strip, knocking down 35 houses and making 345 people homeless. And residents of the West Bank town of Salfit testified to Israeli Foreign Minister Shimon Peres that an Israeli undercover death squad shot two young policemen at close range as they lay unarmed on the ground. 
The first shipment of U.S. food sold to Cuba since the United States imposed a trade embargo four days ago has arrived. The shipment was part of a deal aimed at helping the country recover from the ravages of a powerful hurricane which destroyed crops and caused millions of dollars in damage. The U.S. Congress last year approved the sale of food and agricultural products to Cuba, but such sales did not ensue as U.S. lawmakers staunchly opposed to Cuban President Fidel Castro next U.S. financing. The Washington Post reported yesterday that genetic fingerprinting studies indicate that the anthrax spores mailed to Capitol Hill are identical to stocks of the deadly bacteria maintained by the U.S. Army since 1980. This according to scientists familiar with the most recent tests. Although many laboratories possess the Ames strain of anthrax involved in this fall's bioterrorist attacks, only five laboratories so far have been found to have spores with perfect genetic matches to those in the Senate letters. This according to the scientists. And all those labs can trace back their samples to a single U.S. military source, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick, Maryland. One of the scientists said this means the original source of the terrorist material had to have come from U.S. AMRID. That's again the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. The FBI's investigation into the anthrax attacks is increasingly focusing on whether U.S. government bioweapons research programs, including one conducted by the CIA, may have been the source of deadly anthrax powder sent through the mail. The results of the genetic tests strengthen that possibility. In another weekend development, government health officials said they plan to recommend that about 3,000 people who were exposed to anthrax, including hundreds of Washington Postal and Capitol Hill workers, be offered an experimental vaccine as a precaution in case antibiotic treatment alone failed to protect them from getting sick. And President Bush has stirred a bipartisan firestorm Thursday when he invoked executive privilege to block a congressional subpoena exploring abuses in the Boston FBI office, including an investigation of campaign finance abuses. The order said releasing the records would be contrary to the national interests. Dan Burton, the Indiana Republican who heads the House Government Reform Committee, told a Justice Department official, you tell the president there's going to be war between the president and this committee. We've got a dictatorial president and a Justice Department that does not want Congress involved. The searing tone continued for more than four hours from Republicans and Democrats. They said the order followed a pattern in which the Bush administration has limited access to presidential historical records, refused to give Congress documents about the vice president's energy task force and unilaterally announced plans for military commissions that would try people accused of terrorism in secret. And you're listening to the War and Peace Report as we're joined now live in our firehouse abode by Michael Franti. Gonna keep on walking now, yes I will. Gonna keep on talking now, yes I will. Gonna keep on singing about, yes I will. Keep on ringing now. I received the letter that you wrote me on a dark, cold, and cloudy day. Reminding me on the side of the road, you find a light, you'll find a friend, you'll find a way. But today I'm feeling all broke down. I ain't got the faintest clue about what to do. Well, well. Comprehend the situation at hand So I try my best 
just to get back home to you. Gonna keep on walking now. Yes, I will. Gonna keep on talking loud. Yes, I will. Gonna keep on singing about. Yes, I will. Gonna keep on ringing now. You Michael Franti, and we'll be talking with him in just a little while here on the War and Peace Report as we broadcast just blocks from where the towers of the World Trade Center once stood and more than 3,300 people have been buried there. I'm Amy Goodman. Last night, Yasser Arafat made an impassioned plea to Palestinians to halt all armed activity in the occupied territories and especially attacks on Israeli civilians. Arafat was bowing to intense world pressure to rein in militants after a week of violence that killed 10 Israelis and 20 Palestinians and prompted the Israeli government to sever ties with the Palestinian Authority and launch wide-ranging military strikes in the occupied territories. With Israel's tanks parked only 200 yards from his Ramallah headquarters, the Palestinian leader also appealed to Israel to halt its military strikes, which have killed more than 60 Palestinians and wounded hundreds in recent weeks. Palestinian officials said yesterday that already closed 33 offices of Hamas and Islamic Jihad, but that Israeli military attacks were making it more difficult to go after militants by destroying police and security buildings and generating intense public outrage. The Bush administration has publicly and explicitly defended Israeli military actions, which have involved the use of U.S.-supplied F-16 fighter jets and Apache helicopters. The United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution condemning terror attacks and calling for an end to the violence by both sides, with a U.S. ambassador to the U.N., John Negroponte, saying the resolution was an attempt to isolate Israel. U.S. officials appearing on talk shows yesterday adopted virtually the same stance as the Ariel Sharon government, insisting the primary threat to peace in the Middle East is Palestinian terrorism, making no mention of the Israeli occupation. We go now to Israel and the Occupied Territories. We're joined by Amira Haas, who is a correspondent in the West Bank for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, one of Israel's leading journalists. Uh, she lives in Ramallah. And Isla Jad, professor of cultural studies and women's studies at Berzeit University. Isla Jad, let's begin with you. Uh, can you describe the situation on the ground there now? still uh, very tense around. Uh, this morning uh, we heard about the assassination of uh, a Hamas militant in Hebron and also the killing of uh, a security force uh, member in uh, uh, the northern area in uh, near Nablus. And uh, this morning also three Israeli soldiers uh, lost their way uh, in Ramallah and they have been captured by the Israeli, by the Palestinian uh, security forces and they have been handed to the Israeli uh, side. So uh, this uh, event showed that unfortunately the Israelis are not willing, you know, to calm down the situation to uh, enable the Palestinians to resume negotiations with the, the Israeli side. Islah Jad, what about the speech of Yasser Arafat yesterday? Can you talk about its significance? 
I think it's very significant because the Israelis always uh, wanted the uh, Palestinian president to uh, address you know the Israeli public and also the Palestinians to hold uh, you know uh, activities uh, against the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. The speech of yesterday was very clear in addressing especially the Israeli public in saying that uh, the resistance of the Palestinians against the Israeli occupation forces in the West Bank and Gaza uh, does not intend to uh, threaten the existence of the, uh, uh, the, of the state of Israel. And he denounced very clearly the attacks uh, of uh, suiciders inside the state of uh, Israel. And he said that uh, the Palestinians are aiming to establish their own independent Palestinian state uh, on the territories occupied in 67 uh, war between uh, Arabs and, and Israelis, which it means that uh, this independent state will uh, be established side, side by side with the Israeli state. And this goes along, uh, you know, the whole uh, propaganda of the, uh, unfortunately, of the Israeli actual government saying that the Palestinians are uh, wishing to throw Jews in the sea again, and they are threatening the existence of the state of Israel. Even with this, uh, you know, uh, suicide attacks, I think it's uh, basically out of desperation and out of the total brutality of the uh, Israeli uh, troops, you know, against the Palestinian civilians, and also of the settlers, you know, against the Palestinian uh, civilians. So I think it, it addressed the Israeli public in securing them that the aim or the ultimate goal of the Palestinians is to establish a Palestinian state uh, on the occupied territories in 67 uh, war. Islah Jad is with us. Uh, yes, Islah Jad from, uh, are you now in Ramallah? Yes, I'm now in Ramallah, and as you might know, we are fully surrounded by Israeli troops from all sides. Uh, since now almost two weeks, I'm not allowed to reach my university, the campus of my university. Uh, our students cannot reach also the campus, especially uh, students living in uh, villages nearby the city of, uh, of Ramallah. And uh, if I can uh, summarize my situation now, uh, now I am allowed to circulate around my house of something like uh, from three to five kilometers at the maximum. But uh, the city is surrounded by Israeli troops from all parts, from the northern part uh, towards uh, Birzeit University, from the southern part towards Jerusalem. And by the way, I, uh, me and many others, uh, you know, in the city, we are not allowed to reach the city of Jerusalem. I'm talking here the Arab part of the city of Jerusalem since uh, more than now, you know, uh, nine years. And if we want to go to the Arab part of Jerusalem, we have to get a permit, and it's almost to get a permit from the Israeli uh, troops, and it's uh, close to impossible sometimes, you know, to get this uh, permit. And also, we are not allowed to use the uh, Tel Aviv airport or the Lead uh, or uh, airport. So uh, uh, I can just say that we live in a very uh, uh, medium-sized uh, prison with most of the people hostage in, you know, this city surrounded by Israeli troops from all parts and sides. And, of course, the uh, orchestra of the, of the night, it's always some, you know, uh, shelling here and there by uh, Israeli tanks and helicopters and 
uh, and uh, heavy heavy weapons. I live uh, far away, uh, uh, something like 20 meters from a Quaker's uh, school uh, f- uh, by the name of, of the French school, and the school was hit uh, three days ago by Israeli rockets uh, from a helicopter because it's very close to uh, the remaining of the Ramallah police station, which it was already destroyed a few months uh, ago. So, uh, you know, the whole house where I live was shaken by the force of the rockets, you know, hitting the, the school. And, of course, the, 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 most of the kids around, we, you know, were suffering from a terrible panic, uh, panic attack. Islah Jad, we're also joined from Ramallah by Amira Haas, uh, who is a reporter with the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, the first and only Israeli journalist to live in the Palestinian territories, um, went first to live in Gaza Strip in uh, 1991 and then moved to Ramallah, uh, where she continues her difficult and dangerous work. Uh, can you talk about the Israeli reaction, Amira Haas, to Yasser Arafat's speech yesterday? Well, being here, it's a bit difficult to talk about Israeli. I mean, being here in Ramallah, it's a bit difficult to talk about Israeli reaction. Only I could gather from a few talks this morning and from uh, my editors is that uh, they don't really believe the sincerity of Arafat, and they don't, and they say that. Uh, they're waiting for deeds, not words, and they expect him to have more arrests among uh, uh, Islamist activists, uh, according to the list that Israel submitted, Israel submitted to him, and uh, to bring to a complete halt of all uh, uh, of all use of arms, not only in Israel proper, but also in the occupied territories. As an Israeli Jewish journalist, what we just heard Islak Jad describe about just what it is to live in Ramallah, as she describes this prison, um, is do Israelis understand this, uh, let alone the international community where you aren't right now, but we don't get these descriptions in the United States from that vantage point? Well, I try to give as much as, as I can and as much as the place in my paper proper allows me, uh, but there is a big uh, gap between knowledge and awareness, and awareness and difference and, uh, um, and understanding, and I think that uh, most of the Israelis are captive now in their own, own sense of uh, victimology, uh, and, and they have forgotten, but it's not a new thing, they have forgotten that we are talking about occupation. Uh, they have forgotten this, not this year, but they have forgotten this uh, uh, during the Oslo process, which did not bring Palestinians any prospect of, for independence and, and uh, uh, tranquility, but on the contrary, for the general majority of the Palestinians, it was uh, uh, just a, a ne- almost a negative, pro- I mean, a negative process and a backward process uh, in terms of, of personal and community uh, uh, welfare and, uh, and independence. And most of the Israelis also in the, in the, in the peace camp refused to see, to see this state of affairs. So, of course, they were very insulted when Palestinians broke out, when the Intifada of this year uh, broke out, uh, which something which shaked their uh, um, more or less convenient, convenient life with occupation, but without bearing the, the, the responsibilities of occupation over the Palestinians. Do you think... Um 
what's taking place right now, um, even before the rash of suicide bombings, Amira Haas, was all part of Ariel Sharon's design? You mean since, since the beginning of the Intifada? No, I mean since he has come to power in dealing with Yasser Arafat, as uh, you know, the, the Israeli parliament has severed relationship with him, etc., yeah. though they're saying it's in reaction to the suicide bombing. Ariel Sharon clearly had a very clear plan. Yeah, I guess. It, I mean, uh, we think that Sharon, he, he, he was against Oslo from the start. He was against uh, uh, peace with Palestinians from the start. From, uh, I believe he continues projects that he hasn't finished in, or he thinks he, he completes uh, processes that he hasn't finished in 82. Against Palestinian, uh, not just against Palestinian leadership and Palestinian national movement, but actually against any prospect of Palestinian independence in a in a decent chunk of territory which will allow this this kind of independence. So in that sense, uh, he's not surprising. It's only that indeed with the suicide bombings in Israel, uh, I think the Palestinians have lost a lot. And these suicide bombings happened in a, in a situation of political vacuum where you didn't feel a, a one Palestinian leadership uh, stating out very clearly the, the strategy of this intifada. And uh, then it allowed all kinds of other groupings to, to listen to people's uh, anger with the unbearable and, and, and indescribable uh, uh, suffering, daily suffering and daily bereavement. And they went and uh, did this uh, suicide bombings with a, their own political agenda. I'm sure that the Islamic, the, especially Hamas, have their own uh, political agenda within Palestinian uh, society. So, and this uh, indeed uh, did a lot of harm. I, of course, oppose it on a on moral basis, but uh, it also inflicted a lot of harm to Palestinian struggle because now it's even difficult to explain to people that Palestinians are fighting to hold occupation uh, uh, and, and for a state within the 67 borders. I, uh, Fatah people uh, who, who were from the start trying to make a distinction between uh, Israel proper and uh, occupied territories uh, also felt that now they cannot lead a fight within the occupied territories without being termed uh, terrorists. Well, on that note, I want to thank you both very much for being with us and also giving us a glimpse of life in Ramallah. Amira Haas uh, is an Israeli-Jewish correspondent in Ramallah for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. She's also author of the book Drinking the Sea at Gaza. Nislach Jad with us uh, from Ramallah as well, professor of cultural studies and women's studies at Berzate University. As she has said over the last week, she has not even been able to get to her university. You are listening to the War and Peace Report coming up. Uh, we'll have a conversation with hip-hop artist and activist Michael Franti. We'll also uh, find out uh, about uh, what it's like to be the nephew of a man who's just been picked up and uh, threatened with deportation. Stay with us.
You are listening to the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we go now to Rockefeller Center, where yesterday an alliance of New Yorkers from the New York Coalition for Peace and Justice gathered to lead a holiday rally for an end to war and to defend civil liberties here at home. Uh, Michael Franti sang, and a number of people spoke, including Susanna Deli, and a lot of activists, uh, part of the committee, to indict Ariel Sharon. Um, I'd like to begin by first um, saying something to those who are standing next to us on the other side. Those of you who came here to look at the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, those of you who are celebrating Christmas, well, I just need you to stop for a moment and reflect and think about the fact that the very symbols of your holiday, the town of Bethlehem, the Church of Nativity, is right now being bombed to oblivion by U.S. bombs at a terrorist state known as Israel. And your silence and your deafness to that fact is aiding their war. There will be no Christmas in Bethlehem this year. And you cannot ignore that. The U.S. media and the U.S. government would like to do everything they can to convince you that I am a supporter of terrorism, that you are supporters of terrorism, because we speak out against this racist war against the Afghan people, because, because we speak about freedom for people who've been under colonial European rule for over 50 years, the Palestinian people. Because we say that you cannot, you cannot round up my friends, my neighbors, my cousins, my uncles, my nephews. You cannot take them and throw them in jail and then not tell me where they are. You cannot do that. The men in our community are missing. We do not know where they are. During this holiday season, two days ago, we were prevented from sending money home to our family in Jordan. The U.S. government says that that money is being sent for terrorist purposes. It's being sent to my sick grandmother who just suffered the loss of her husband. And I cannot send money home to my family because of U.S. racist policies. And I'm here to say to you that I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of being called a terrorist. I'm sick and tired of this U.S.-Israeli war against the Palestinian people. I'm sick and tired of the terrorization of the Arab and Muslim community here. Two of my, co my cousins have been victims of hate crimes. Okay. We have been stopped in the street, pointed at, and called terrorists. But I am not here to tell you that I need your help. I am not here to tell you that you need to pity us. This is not our fight. This is your 
Susanna Deli. She spoke yesterday at the protest against the war at New York's Rockefeller Center. She's with Alada, the Right of Return Coalition. You are listening to the War and Peace Report. As we turn now to Abdullah Al-Aryan, he's a student at Duke University. He's also the nephew of Mazen al-Najjar, who was detained and placed under federal deportation order uh, since September 11th. Al-Najjar was released last December after being imprisoned for three years on secret evidence. But three weeks ago, INS officials greeted Al-Najjar as he left the house and have held him in detention ever since. They're threatening to deport him based on visa expiration charges. Abdullah Al-Aryan is also the son of American Muslim activist and professor Sami Al-Aryan, who teaches computer science at the University of South Florida. His Palestinian nationalist views have long been controversial in Tampa, where he lives and works. But after he appeared on the Fox News show The O'Reilly Factor, where host Bill O'Reilly drew connections between him and terrorist groups, the university where he's worked was barraged by hundreds of threatening letters and emails and put Alarian on leave. Abdullah Alarian appeared on Democracy Now! last July after he'd just begun an internship with Congressman David Bonier. He was approached by a White House security guard and asked to leave the premises uh, with no reason given for his removal. Muslim leaders walked out of a White House meeting in protest at the exclusion um, of one of those attending. Alarian wrote in a piece in the Duke University paper, The Chronicle, saying unwarranted imprisonment show that civil liberties still need to be protected. We welcome you to Democracy Now! in Exile, Abdullah Alarian. Just a reminder to our listeners, um, the White House meeting you were taken out of by security guards? Yes, it was a Secret Service at the time, and they provided me no reason, but I did receive an apology from the president the next day. And tell us uh, about your recent Thanksgiving. Well, my Thanksgiving was a very special one indeed, simply for the fact that for the first time in four years, my uncle was home. And as, as you said, he was uh, released from INS detention last uh, December. And this was the first Thanksgiving and actually first, um, Ram- or the first Ramadan that he would be here for the whole time. And you know, next thing I know, we we wake up a Saturday morning on November 24th, only to hear that he's been taken yet again. Can you talk about uh, what this means to your family and what the government is saying about him? Well, I mean, it's ex- it's extremely disheartening because we've been through this process already once before. We've been through the process of having to denounce allegations against you that you don't know what the allegations are or who they're coming from. We've simply heard this cloud of, of terrorist threats and and, you know, national security threats, and, and yet there's no evidence that's ever been shown to provide uh, or to support those kind of allegations. Even a federal judge has said, after looking at both the, the public evidence and the secret evidence, that this person in, in no way poses a threat to national security or in no way can be linked to any sort of uh, terrorism. But yet, you know, even though during the first uh, experience, the uh, judicial, judicial system was basically abused in order to have someone detained on three and a half years based on secret evidence. In this instance, the judicial system seems to have been completely bypassed because a federal judge's decision was completely disregarded in in the INS's decision to simply arrest him once again. 
Finally, um, Abdullah Larian, what about you? You're a student at Duke University. We're hearing about college campuses around the country that are handing over the names of young Middle Eastern uh, students to the FBI, giving over records. What's been your situation? Well, my situation personally has, has not suffered as much, I think, as a lot of other campuses and a lot of other students. I mean, um, my experience has simply been you know, trying to watch for the discrimination, the sort of profiling that, that occurs on a lot of different school campuses. And for the most part, I think it's it's been relatively fair. I mean, with, with everything that's happening, some of it, you know, has been warranted in order to have scrutiny. But at the same time, I think we have to be really careful not to abuse people's rights, especially students who are simply here to get an education. I mean, this is something that I think everyone has a right to, and, and it's 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 a big mistake when we start cracking down on, on the students. Has the FBI approached you to ask you the series of questions um, that uh, we now have been reading about, like who are your friends, what are their numbers, what were your feelings about September 11th that are being asked of uh, supposedly 5,000 young men? Not as of yet, no. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us, Abdullah Larian, senior at Duke University and nephew of Mazen al-Najjar, detained and placed under federal deportation order uh, since uh, the September 11th attacks. Uh, he was actually arrested after Thanksgiving. You're listening to the War and Peace Report. Before we go to Michael Franti, we're going to go for a minute to New Delhi, India, where police uh, have claimed to have established a link between Pakistan's intelligence service and last week's attack on parliament in New Delhi that claimed 12 lives. Five men armed with AK-47s and explosives stormed the complex on Thursday, killing five policemen, a security guard, a gardener, and themselves. India's foreign minister said India had issued a formal complaint to the Pakistani High Commission, claiming it had technical evidence that the attack was the work of one of two Kashmiri Islamic militant groups, either Lakshari Taiba, the Army of the Pure, and Jaish Muhammad, the Nation of Muhammad. India has given Pakistan an ultimatum to shut down the two groups, which some link to the Al-Qaeda network. The Indian police said yesterday they'd arrested three people as part of their investigation. Sputnik Columbia is with us just for a minute uh, to tell us the latest uh, on the attack on Parliament and its significance. Welcome, Sputnik. Hi, Amy. Good to be with you again. Good to have you with us. Can you talk about um, the latest on this attack on Parliament? Yes, well, the government in India is taking a very, very tough position, vowing to uh, track down those responsible and go after the terrorists wherever they are, uh, whoever they are. Uh, they <clears throat> have made no, uh, uh, they haven't hidden the fact that they would like to take a leaf out of the U.S. and out of the Israeli book and uh, go after these uh, terrorists. They claim to have uh, conclusive, credible evidence that uh, two Pakistani-based Kashmiri militant groups, the Jashi Mohammed and the Lashkari Toiba, uh, were behind the December 13th attack on the Indian parliament. Uh, both groups have denied it, as well as the United Jihad Council, which is a Pakistani-based umbrella group uh, representing Kashmiri separatist organizations, have also denied it. As you said in your introduction, uh, India has lodged a very, very strong complaint with the Pakistani High Commission and has now called on Islamabad to arrest uh, those uh, those officials, top officials of these two groups. 
Uh, Pakistan uh, was very quick to condemn the attack, but uh, in response to calls from some members of the BJP, the uh, Hindu Revivalist Party, which heads the coalition, uh, calling for hot pursuit and uh, retaliation and attacks on what they call uh, terror camps uh, in Pakistan, uh, Musharraf has uh, given a very, very strict warning and a tough warning that India should not in, uh, indulge in any adventurous uh, uh, tactics, as he put it. And uh, the difference is, uh, in terms of when India wants to compare uh, its position with that of the Israelis or the United States, uh, Pakistan is a nuclear country, unlike uh, the Palestinians or the Afghans. So the situation is uh, is certainly very tense. Uh, there are also reports that there is a troop build-up on the Pakistani side. There has been... Uh, fighting across the line of control in the last couple of days. Uh, the Indian government, it has to be said, is also trying to use the situation to push through a very, very unpopular and very, very controversial anti-terrorism ordinance. It was running into great trouble with the opposition to put it through. And as the opposition is pointing out, despite the ordinance, which is already in place, it didn't prevent this uh, terrorist attack from being carried out. It has also accused the government of not following up on warnings that such an attack was likely. The Home Minister and the Prime Minister had themselves both both gone on record saying an attack on the parliament was likely, and this was over the whole of last month, that, uh, and, and yet this attack took place. Uh, so there is also an element of playing to the domestic audience because the government faces a very tough election in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh in a couple of months and is expected to, bad, to do badly in those uh, polls. Plus the government was was in the was at the receiving end of a terrible defense scandal where uh, the, the the government which talks about nationalism and patriotism is accused of having ordered coffins at extremely high prices for soldiers who died in the conflict with Pakistan two years ago in Kargil and those coffins never arrived so there was a there's a big defense scan and this terrorist attack now seems to have taken the heat off the government at a time when the opposition was calling on the government to step down. Well, Sputnik, you have now only terrorism. I want to thank you very much for being with us. We're, I'm going to ask you about uh, the U.S. response to the attack on Parliament in our second hour. Sputnik Kalambi is a correspondent with Free Speech Radio News speaking to us from New Delhi, India. Um, you are listening to the War and Peace Report. For nearly a decade, hip-hop artist and activist Michael Franti has been one of the leading progressive voices in music. Uh, rising out of the Bay Area music and political scene of the early 1990s, uh, Michael Franti founded the Beatniks, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, and most recently the musical collective Spearhead. Michael's music mixes hip-hop, soul, jazz influence, but is driven by his political lyrics. His latest album, Stay Human, proposes that grassroots community activists infiltrate, overthrow, and take the media into their own hands to get important political messages out to a wider audience. The album also takes on the death penalty with songs interspersed by broadcasts from an imaginary pirate radio station. Stay Human Radio, working to prevent the execution of a community activist. He's also a longtime political activist, uh, using his music to support anti-racist, anti-police brutality, and anti-war organizing around the country. Uh, in fact, on September 11th, Michael, um, the day of the attacks, you were about to have one of your big events dealing with police well, brutality. For the last uh, three years, we've put on a 911 festival in San Francisco. The first one was Mumia 911. It was to draw. Uh, on September 11th to draw attention to the emergency state of Mumia's case. And then the next year we expanded it to be about the prison industry in general. And we had 
bands and speakers speak about what's happening with the prison industry, and also including Mumia. And then this year we're scheduled to do it again, um, and, but this year, September 11th, obviously has taken on a new meaning. And so this year's concert became uh, one for, uh, you know, highlighting the prison industry and the death penalty, but also drawing the, the connection between how we feel about revenge, which is really what the death penalty is about, and then linking that to this revenge that we feel that we need to exact on others as a result of this massacre that occurred in New York and at the Pentagon. We have to break for stations to identify themselves. Um, if stations want to break into the music and say something, uh, you can, but uh, Michael's going to play a song for us. <coughs> okay. <laughs> Everybody wants to be who they want to be Everybody wants to have a good time I just want to hang out with my peaceful little family Playing sweet, sweet music with some friends of mine But I try hard to fake it, but I can't do it all the time Try hard to break it, but it was just a waste of my time When I turn on my TV, seems they're winning all the time I pray to God to please show me a sign Has anybody seen my mind? Has anybody seen my mind? I would never ever leave you hanging on the corner No, no, no I would never ever leave you all alone I always wanted you to know that you could depend on me When I come to your place I would never ever be without a home But I try hard to fake it But I can't do it all the time Try hard to break it, but it was just a waste of my time. When I turn on my TV, seems they're winning all the time. I pray to God to please show me a sign. Has anybody seen my mind? Has anybody seen my mind? I want you to walk with me now, talk with me now, be with me now and everything is alright. Walk with me now, talk with me now, be with me now and everything is alright. Walk with me now, talk with me now, be with me now and everything is alright. Walk with me now, talk with me now. But I try hard to fake it. I can't do it all the time Try hard to break it But it was just a waste of my time When I turn on my TV Seems they're winning all the time I pray to God to please show me a sign Has anybody seen my mind? 
anybody seen my mind? Michael Franny, live in our firehouse studio. Nice. Just blocks from ground zero. <clears throat> Can you talk about the music community or scene since September 11th? Uh, for example, you've been touring around um, with, uh, with the group Blues Traveler. Well, um, I've been really disappointed with the music community. Um, I feel like there haven't been uh, really any artist or a few artists, very small handful of people who have been speaking about um, peace. You know, I think everyone is so afraid of what the administration, the Bush administration has laid out that if you're not in, in support of the war that in somehow you support terrorism. And, and I, I totally disagree with that. And I feel that um, the music community has always been one that is, that is spoken out for peace and to question what was happening uh, with, with world politics. And uh, it seems like th there's been this silence. And I think that th it has to do with the globalization of the music industry and the fact that there's only sort of four or five major corporations that own all of the record labels now. And they're really interested in signing artists today who are not out there to you know, bring great music to people, but are out there to bring quick dividends to the, s to the shareholders. Mm. And, um, and so I think that it's, it's, it's affected the voice in music a lot. And what kind of pressure do you face, like just when you're on the road with a group that might not share your politics? If well, we've, we've been out with a group that, um, not, not specifically the members of the group, but some of the members of the, the crew that were working with us had made comments about a song I was singing that was a song in favor of peace. And, you know, a lot of the people on the crew were in NYPD hats and, and were kind of distant from us, you know. But what we found is that we, as we traveled across the country, even in some places like um, Lincoln, Nebraska, where the audience was very kind of middle of the road, and some of the people were there were like country music fans and wearing cowboy hats, and this one sort of 50s-year-old gentleman came up to me after the show with a big belt buckle on, a big black cowboy hat, and I thought he was going to knock me out. <laughs> and he came up to me and he said, you know, I've seen Clint Black, I've seen Garth Brooks, I've seen these, but none of them ever sang a song about peace like you, and I just want to say thanks a lot. And so I was, I was really heartened traveling across this country right now to see that what you hear on CNN, about 85% of the people supporting this war is BS and um, the people out there are most people just dealing with the six inches in front of their face trying to raise their families go about their life had the wind knocked out of them by this attack this massacre and are now just being told what to think and um, but if given the option for peace they would much prefer that Michael Franny can you sing the song that um, eh inspires the ire of some of the people yeah. you may travel with. Yeah, this is a song um, that's about bombing, and we sang it also on the Craig Kilborn show um, a, a few weeks ago, and they, they taped it and then had us tape another song, and they didn't air this, this song. They really? The other song. Craig Kilborn being the <coughs> late night? Late night, yeah. Network. TV show. TV show. They wouldn't air it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Please tell me the reason Behind the colors that you fly Please tell me the reason You want us to unify You say you're sorry Said there is no other choice How can you feel sorry When you kill people with no voice You can chase down all your enemies Bring them to their knees You can bomb the world to pieces but you can't buy me into peace Whoa, you may even find a solution To hunger and disease You can bomb the world to pieces But you can't buy me into peace The earthquake of anger Simply brings more of the same Military madness The smell of flesh and burning pain So I sing out to the masses Stand up if you're still sane To all of us gone crazy I sing this one refrain We can chase down all our enemies Bring them to their knees We can bomb the world to pieces But we can't bomb it into peace Whoa, we may even find a solution To hunger and disease Yes, we can bomb the world to pieces But we can't bomb it into peace And I sing power to the people And I sing love to the people, y'all I sing power to the people And I sing love to the people, y'all You may even find a solution Hunger and disease You can bomb the world into pieces But you can't bomb it into peace We can chase down all our enemies We can even bring them to their knees Yes, we can bomb the world into pieces but we can't bomb it in to peace. Mm -hmm. Bomb the world. Michael Franti here in the Firehouse Studios of the War and Peace Report, Democracy Now! in Exile. You talked about the music industry and how tough it is. Um, your last CD, an internet CD, can you explain how you get your art out your politics well we we do it through the traditional route you know we uh 
we we we're, we we work with an independent label, you know, and we and we get our records in stores as much as we can. We sell them on the road as much as we can, and um, through our website, we sort of more than use it as a vehicle for selling music. We just use it as a vehicle to galvanize the community of people who are into what we do. And uh, the website is called SpearheadVibrations.com. And um, but traveling on the road you know, and playing music for people is the best way to deliver, you know. And um, my goal through, through my music is to try to relieve suffering, you know. And I want people to, if even for those moments while we're performing, to feel uplifted, to feel like you're not alone in the world, to feel like um, there's other people who are in this fight um, for justice and for peace. You, uh, since September 11th, have traveled through Europe, and um, in Europe now, uh, there is not a lot of information here about the fact that European countries say they're not going to extradite terrorist suspects to the United States because of the military tribunals Mm -hmm. and because of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Your last CD, Stay Human, was all about the death penalty. can you talk about what you found in Europe when you were playing, what people's response was post-911? Well, most people are um, first you know, shocked and horrified by the attack, and then equally shocked and horrified by the attack that we've been engaging in over the last couple of months on the people of Afghanistan. And I think people in Europe have a, little, a closer connection to war because they've had so much war on their land, you know, and um, they realize that as soon as war begins, that we all lose. And they also have had more, quote unquote, terrorism, which is a word I don't like to use, but bombing um, in, in civilian, you know, times and times of peace. And so they also feel uh, and understand the, f- the futility of bombing and recognize that all bombing is terrorism, no matter who does it. If it's the U.S. doing it and to another country, it's the same as somebody coming here and doing it to us. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, it, was, it was good to be there and also to see that the, the media over there, although the, uh, you know, most of the corporate media there is, is pretty similar to what's happening here, you still see other stories within those newspapers of, of, of different opinions, and at least those opinions are having a chance to be aired there. Unlike here? Yeah. How about one of your songs on the death penalty? Okay. Listen, I'll do acapella. Slam, bam, I come unseen, but like gasoline, you could tell I'm in the tank. Like money in the bank. I smell appealing, but I'm toxic, can send you reeling without an inkling. Keep it thinking, cause you gave cash to the feds if your school district for dead. Messed you up in the head, but still they saying nothing's wrong. Selling fire water by outlawing the bomb. Still believing the system is working, while half of my people are still out of working. Anonymous notes left in the pockets and coats of judges and juries from Frisco to Jersey. Threats and protests, politicians, mob debts, trumped up charges and phony arrests. Stay a lethal injection the night before the election, because he got donation from the prison guards union. Singing, oh my, oh my God. I hear my mother got a living suicide. Singing, oh my Oh my God, and my mother got us living genocide. 
Listen in to my stethoscope on a rope. Internal lullabies, human cries, thumps in silence, the language of violence, algorithmic, cataclysmic, seismic, biorhythmic, where you can make a life longer, but you can't save it. You can make a clone and then you try to enslave it, stealing DNA samples from the unborn. Then you coming after us because we sampled a James Brown horn? Scientists whose God is progress, a four-headed sheep is their latest project. The CIA running like that Jones from Indiana, but they still won't talk about that Jones in Guyana. This ain't no cartoon. No one slips on bananas. Do you really think that that car killed Diana? Hell, I shot Ronald Reagan. I shot JFK. I slept with Marilyn and she sung me happy birthday. I'm singing, oh my, oh my God. And him and my mother got us living suicide, singing, oh my, oh my God. And him and my mother got us living genocide. But politicians got lipstick on the collar. The whole media started to holler. But I don't give a damn who they screwing in private. I want to know who they screwing in public. Robbing, cheating, stealing, white collar criminal, McDonald eating. You deserve a beating. Send you home weeping with the fat bill for your Caribbean weekend. For just about anything, they can bust us. False advertising saying halls of justice. You telling the youth don't be so violent. Then you drop bombs on every single continent. Mandatory minimum sentencing. Because he got caught with a pocket full of medicine. Do that again. Another 10 up in the pan. I feel so mad. I want a peaceful revolution. I'm singing, oh, my Oh my God, I hear my mother got a living suicide singing. Oh my, oh my God, I hear my mother got a living genocide. But we keep moving on. Michael Franti, oh my God. And that does it for the program. Um, Michael, take us out to the next hour. Um, if you'd like to get more information on his music, his work, go to spearheadvibrations.com. Um, you can also go to our website if you'd like to let friends know about this program, democracynow.org. Oh, and Michael, here's to add to your wardrobe. Oh, Democracy nice. Now hat, the exception to the rulers, nice. and the vintage Democracy Now in Exile War and Peace Report. Beautiful. <laughs> well, on behalf of everybody in the Bay Area where I live, we really appreciate all y'all. There's a whole staff up here you guys might not know, but this is really, truly... Uh, the front line here in terms of journalism. So you and, think uh, maybe the revolution will be televised? Well, if, if, it's, if it's on indie media, it will be. <laughs> well, and uh, uh, a great shout-out. We'll have shout a mini-series after it's all over. <laughs> and a shout-out to all the folks in San Francisco, Berkeley, KPFA. It was great to see you all with the whole Democracy, sta Democracy Now! staff this weekend. Democracy Now! in Exile is produced by Chris Abrams, Brad Simpson, Miranda Kennedy, with help from Lizzie Ratner, and um, um, Suganya Mahendra. Anthony Sloan is our engineer and music maestro. You can hear us at WBIX.org, where Errol Maitland's at the helm. Special thanks to Downtown Community Television, where we're broadcasting from, broadcasting at Channel 9415 on um, Dish Network, that's Free Speech TV, as well as cable access stations around the country and community radio stations. That's Pacifica Affiliates. We are Pacifica. In exile from the embattled studios of WBAI, studios of the band and the fire, the studios of our listeners. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening.
From Ground Zero Radio, this is Democracy Now in Exile. Radical pacifist A.J. Musty. Uh, as the U.S. entered World War I uh, 60 years ago, he predicted with some uh, accuracy the contours of the world that would take shape uh, after the American victory. And uh, a little later, he observed that the problem after a war is with the victor. He thinks he has just proved that war and violence pay. Uh, who will teach him a lesson? Noam Chomsky on the shape of the world after September 11th. All that and more coming up. Welcome to the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The surviving remnants of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda network yesterday fled across frozen mountaintops in a bloody rout that left hundreds of them dead. Pro-Western Mujahideen commanders declared they had captured all of the caves used by al-Qaeda fighters and had liberated Afghanistan. But despite weeks of rumors that he was hiding inside the Tora Bora caves, there was no sign of Osama bin Laden yesterday. U.S. warplanes continue to stage overnight raids in Tora Bora and injured several U.S. allied Afghan fighters. Three Marines were wounded by a landmine yesterday at the airport outside Kandahar as they worked to clear an airport building of mines as well as U.S. cluster bombs. The men were quickly evacuated to the field hospital at Camp Rhino in southern Afghanistan. One of them, who lost his leg below the knee when he stepped on the mine, was evacuated to an Air Force hospital in the Persian Gulf area. In the years to come, Afghans will not be so lucky as to be able to be evacuated from areas where cluster bombs yet unexploded will remain. Meanwhile, War Secretary Donald Rumsfeld held talks at the Kabul Air Base with the new head of the Afghan interim government, Hamid Karzai, during the highest level U.S. visit to the country in more than 20 years. Rumsfeld assured him that the U.S. had no territorial ambitions in sending its military to Afghanistan. Palestinian President Yasser Arafat last night made an impassioned televised appeal to Palestinians to halt armed attacks on Israeli civilians. Israel's tanks were parked only 200 yards from his Ramallah headquarters. Arafat denied buckling before the might of Israel's military offensive launch last Thursday or to the mounting pressure for him to crack down a militant saying terrorist attacks had violated the Palestinians' own national interests. And police in India claim yesterday to have established a link between Pakistan's intelligence service and last week's attack on Parliament in New Delhi that claimed 12 lives. Five men armed with AK-47s and explosives stormed the complex on Thursday, killing five policemen, a security guard, and and Gardner and themselves. We go now to New Delhi to Sputnik Kalambi, who is a correspondent with Free Speech Radio News. Sputnik, um, the Secretary of State, General Colin Powell, has uh, talked about uh, the attack on the Indian Parliament. Can you talk about its significance in India and what the U.S. Rela- response to the accusations against Pakistan are? 
Well, India has been saying for some time, ever since September 11th, that maybe it should uh, uh, follow the American example. Now it has the Israeli example of, uh, of attacks against the Palestinians, and India says it should do the same thing to go after uh, terrorist training camps in Pakistan. Uh, India has been also chafing at the bit that the U.S. has been waiting to uh, include some of the groups that India calls terrorists on its list of banned groups. Now it looks like that the Jaishi Mohammed and the Lashkari Toiba, two Pakistani-based Kashmiri militant groups, Groups that India has now said is uh, was uh, involved in Thursday's uh, suicide attack against the Indian Parliament uh, will be on the on the U.S. hit list uh, of of, of uh, terrorist groups. Uh, the U.S.'s uh, attitude this time seems to be different in the sense Richard Armitage, a senior U.S. official, said that he the United States expected India to take what it called uh, what he called appropriate action, though he didn't spell it out. The U.S. ambassador uh, to India issued a very very strong statement been saying Thursday's attack was exactly the same as the September 11th attack and uh, that the Indo-U.S. cooperation uh, would now significantly step up. You have uh, the Home Minister and the Defense Minister uh, going uh, to the United States in the next few days to continue liaising on this anti-terrorism and platform. But uh, today, Colin Powell, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, asked India to show restraint. In the meantime, the Indian government is trying to uh, use this um, situation to push through its controversial anti-terrorism bill. Uh, Critics here, analysts here, point out also the timing of this uh, suicide attack, this terrorist attack on December 13th, came at a time when the government was extremely embarrassed by the latest defense scam uh, to hit it, where you have the defense ministry paying $2,500 instead of $175 uh, per coffin uh, for soldiers who died in a conflict with Pakistan uh, two years ago. Uh, those coffins arrived eight months after the battle. So that was extremely embarrassing for the government, which is also facing a very tough election in the next few months and is not expected to do well. Sputnik, so I want to I wanna thank Thank you very much for joining us from New Delhi, Sputnik Kalambi of Free Speech Radio News. And finally, the Washington Post reporting that genetic fingerprinting studies indicate that the anthrax spores mailed to Capitol Hill are identical to stocks of the deadly bacteria maintained by the U.S. Army since 1980. Although many labs possess the Ames strain of anthrax involved in the fall's bioterrorist attacks, only five labs so far have been found to have spores with perfect genetic matches to those in the Senate letters. All those labs can trace back their samples to a simple uh, single U.S. military source, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Please remember me when I close my eyes. Please remember me when I scream my silent cries and I say, Will you remember me when I'm not doing my best? And I say, Will you remember me when my spirit needs to rest? But it seems to me that I'm about to be feeling free now. Bye. Take a bow when you feel like a superstar. But a bye, bye. Shake your pants when you show what you feel inside your heart Throw your hands in the air when you feel like love is your need Yes, and when you can't feel a thing just hold on to me 
on to me yes. I want to thank you for the seeds you've planted in me I want to thank you for the earth that roots my feet and I say I want to thank you for the sun that greens my leaves, yes. I want to thank you for the mystery inside of me, but it seems to me that I'm about to be feeling free now. Michael Franti live in our firehouse studio here at the war and peace report activist and artist and if you'd like to get more information on his work you can go to spearheadvibrations.com thank you michael thanks thanks for having us here and thanks for all the whole staff here and crew i wish people who are listening could see what this is because it's really some underground style stuff that like the underground railroad from slavery the intention was never to stay underground it was to get above ground and you guys are really doing it helping to get this word above ground so big up to y'all keep it going stay courageous and you can tell your friends thank you um that they can get us on any public access uh, cable station in the country uh just go to our website and you can see where we're broadcasting you can make it happen because the media is yours the airwaves are public you can also get us on any community radio station in the country and call the pacifica stations as well and ask them to start rebroadcasting us again also on dish network channel 9415 free speech tv the 24-hour channel I'm Amy Goodman. This is the War and Peace Report from Michael Franti to Noam Chomsky. In the Tora Bora region of Afghanistan, the surviving remnants of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda fled across the frozen mountaintops in a bloody rout by U.S.-backed forces that left hundreds of al-Qaeda dead. The capture of a network of caves thought to house Osama bin Laden came after two weeks of guerrilla fighting and relentless U.S. carpet bombing that flattened nearby villages and killed hundreds of civilians. U.S. bombing has killed more than, it is believed, 4,000 Afghan civilians since October 7th. War Secretary Donald Rumsfeld traveled to Afghanistan yesterday to meet with the interim Prime Minister Hamid Karzai. He also told U.S. troops that their task is to continue ensuring that terrorists face punishment for the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon. Rumsfeld repeatedly warned that the military mission in Afghanistan was far from over and that the so-called war on terrorism would be broader still. U.S. officials have said Somalia, the Sudan, and Iraq, among other countries, could be the next to face military attack. U.S. military advisors met just a week ago with Somali officials to identify possible military targets in the event of U.S. military strikes. Well, it's become a staple of commentary in the mass media and among politicians to observe how the world has changed since September 11th. But for those on the receiving end of U.S. foreign policy in Afghanistan and elsewhere over the last 50 years, the world the U.S. is trying to shape looks much as it did before. We turn now to Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, leading scholar and critic of U.S. foreign policy, author of many books. His latest is 911, just published by Seven Stories Press. He recently gave this speech about the U.S. war against Afghanistan and the shape of the world to come. 
Uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm not the only one to have been reminded in the past months of some wise and prescient uh, remarks by one of the uh, most impressive figures of 20th century America, the radical pacifist A.J. Musty. Uh, as the U.S. entered World War I uh, 60 years ago, he predicted with some uh, accuracy the contours of the world that would take shape uh, after the American victory. And uh, a little later, he observed that the problem after a war is with the victor. He thinks he has just proved that war and violence pay. Uh, who will teach him a lesson? Uh, far too many people around the world uh, were to learn the uh, bitter meaning of those words. Uh, it's only in folk tales and children's stories and uh, the pages of journals of intellectual opinion that power is used wisely and well uh, to eradicate evil in the world. Uh, the real world teaches quite different lessons and it takes uh, willful and dedicated ignorance to fail to perceive them. Uh, the, successful, the successful use of violence uh, typically engenders enthusiastic praise uh, among the flatterers at the court, uh, the secular priesthood of intellectuals in the modern era. As far as I know, that's universally true, at least I don't know of any exceptions. Uh, even in the most monstrous states, so take, say, Hitler, Germany. Uh, Hitler was probably the most uh, popular leader in German history as long as he was marching from triumph to triumph. Uh, and Germany, we should remember, uh, is uh, represented the peak uh, of uh, the cultural and scientific peak of Western civilization. Uh, these are unfortunately uh, leading themes of history and well-known ones. Uh, one of the main historians who studied European state formation, Charles Tilley, pointed out quite accurately that, for, I'm quoting him, that for a millennium, war has been the dominant activity of European states for a very good reason. The central tragic fact is simple, coercion works. Those who apply substantial force to their fellows get compliance, and from that compliance draw the multiple advantages of money, goods, deference, access to pleasures denied to less powerful people. Uh, the deference uh, includes the awed uh, claim of the educated classes and the costless destruction of defenseless enemies. Uh, that wins particular admiration. Uh, it also becomes habitual and natural and proof of one's virtue uh, so that the victors are suffused with a, a saintly glow uh, at the height of their glory in a noble phase of their foreign policy. Actually, I don't have the imagination to make that up. I'm quoting it from some typical descriptions of U.S. leaders by eminent historians and uh, commentators in the world's leading newspaper in the past few years. Uh, these are all historical truisms, should be regarded as such, uh, truisms that uh, most of the people of the world have learned uh, the hard way throughout history. Uh, one normal concomitant of uh, easy victory over defenseless enemies uh, is the uh, habit 
of preferring force uh, over the pursuit of uh, other means, peaceful means. Uh, another concomitant is the very high priority of acting without authority. So uh, the incarnation of uh, the God who uh, comes to earth as the perfect man with the mission of eradicating evil from the world, uh, he doesn't need any higher authority. Uh, that was true of the most ancient uh, Indian epics from several millennia ago, uh, and it holds as well for the vulgar plagiarism of today. Uh, the preference for reliance on force to uh, over, uh, and the rejection of uh, authorization uh, and the impressive uh, flights of self-adulation immunity from uh, elementary self-criticism. These have been very notable features of the last decade of uh, overwhelming and unchallenged power and costless destruction of uh, much weaker adversaries, uh, all carried out uh, in uh, explicit uh, accord with, uh, with uh, uh, policy recommendations with formulated policy recommendations, so not just by accident. Uh, I think that uh, these are some of the considerations that ought to be in the back of our minds when we're contemplating the question that was raised for this session, the world after September 11th. Uh, whatever judgment one may have uh, about the events of the past few months, uh, if you want to reach a, some kind of reasonable assessment of what may lie ahead, we ought to attend carefully to several crucial factors. Uh, one of them uh, is the uh, premises uh, on which policy choices are uh, based. That's obviously critical for figuring out what's likely to happen. Uh, uh, second is the uh, roots of these choices in uh, institutions and uh, ideology, which doctrines which are quite stable. And a third uh, is the uh, way that these doctrines and institutions have uh, been, have led to, uh, to action uh, in the very recent past, uh, including actions crucially taken by the very people who are the uh, leading decision makers today. Uh, all of that is, uh, critically important for trying to reach some sensible judgment about what the future may bring, at least if present tendencies continue. Uh, well, the uh, new millennium quickly offered uh, two new and monstrous crimes, uh, adding them to plenty of lingering ones. Uh, the first was, the, of course, the terrorist attacks of September 11th. The second is the response to them, uh, which surely took a far greater toll and will, will take an even greater toll of uh, innocent civilian lives, uh, people who are innocent of any crime and who themselves are uh, victims of the uh, suspected perpetrators of the crimes of September 11th. Uh, I'll take for granted here that uh, the perpetrators were the Al-Qaeda network and Osama bin Laden. There was a prima facie case uh, supporting that at the outset, and it remains about as it was. No further evidence has come along, uh, which is kind of remarkable since uh, this is 
surely been the most intense uh, in, uh, investigation uh, on the part of the world's intelligence agencies in history. But these are hard things to figure out, and the fact that they don't have much or any evidence is perhaps not too surprising. You can invest, ask, uh, just consider the difficulty of finding out the source of the anthrax scare right here. There's plenty of other examples. You're listening to Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author of 911 and many other books. And if you'd like to get more information on the Noam Chomsky videotape, you can call 1 800 926 3921. That's 1 800 926 3921. We're going to come back to the speech in just a minute here on the War and Peace Report. This is a mean world to try to live in, to try to stay in until you die. This is a mean world to try to live in, to try to stay in until you die. Without a mother, without a father, without a sister, Lord, without a brother. This is a mean world to try to live in, to try to stay in until you die. This is a mean old world to live in, a mean old world to live in until you die. Get up in the morning and I read the daily news. I shake my head and lay back down after sin and trouble too. Some people call me noisy. I belong to the noisy. This is a mean world, sweet honey in the rock. Here on the War and Peace Report, I'm Amy Goodman as we go back to Noam Chomsky speaking about the shape of the world since September 11th. Uh, in both of these cases, the crimes of September 11th and the crimes of the response, uh, the, uh, uh, the crimes are considered uh, right uh, and just, in fact, noble, uh, within the doctrinal systems of the uh, perpetrators. And in fact, uh, they're justified by the perpetrators in almost the same words. Uh, so Osama bin Laden tells us that uh, violence is justified uh, in self-defense against the infidels who invade and occupy Muslim lands uh, and against the brutal and uh, corrupt governments that they impose. Now, these words are, uh, they have quite considerable resonance in the region, even among people who despise and fear him and in fact are his targets. Uh, Bush and Blair and others like them proclaim uh, in virtually identical words that violence is justified to expel evil from our lands. Uh, the proclamations are virtually identical, but not entirely so. Uh, when Osama talks about our lands, thanks, uh, he's, he's referring to Muslim lands, so Chechnya and Bosnia and uh, Kashmir, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and others. The uh, radical Islamists who were uh, mobilized and trained and nurtured by the CIA and their associates through the 1980s, uh, they despise Russia. Uh, but uh, uh, after uh, uh, the Russians had uh, uh, withdrawn from their territory, they did terminate the atrocities uh, within Russia based in Afghanistan. 
uh, there, from their point of view, defending Muslim lands, Chechnya now, but not, not, not Russia itself. Uh, uh, Bush and Blair, on the other hand, when they talk about our lands, they mean the whole world, and they're very <laughs> clear about it. Uh, and that difference reflects the power that they command. Uh, the fact that either side can speak without shame of eradicating evil uh, should leave us uh, open-mouthed in astonishment uh, unless we adopt the easy course of just effacing even very recent history. Uh, another fact that has grim portent is that in both of these cases, the uh, adversaries insist on underscoring the criminality of their acts. They want you to know that they're criminal acts. Now, that's obvious in the case of September 11th, so we'll comment on it. Uh, more striking and important for the future is that the same is true of the U.S. response. So the United States pointedly uh, rejected uh, the framework of legitimacy that resides in the uh, international system and the U.N. Charter. Uh, there's no doubt that Washington could have obtained clear and explicit Security Council authorization, uh, not for very attractive reasons. The reasons are clear enough. Uh, Russia and China are quite eager to have U.S. authorization for their own horrendous atrocities and crimes. They would therefore go along. Uh, England and France have a strong enough uh, imperial legacy uh, so that uh, uh, attacks against the lesser breeds uh, raise no problems, uh, so there would be no veto. Uh, but the U.S. chose very, very pointedly uh, to reject Security Council authorization uh, and to insist on its unique right to act unilaterally uh, in explicit violation of uh, international law and its treaty obligations and unconstrained by any higher authority. It's incidentally a right that was forcefully proclaimed by Bill Clinton very explicitly uh, and his predecessors all in very clear and unambiguous terms. And these are uh, warnings that uh, we can choose to ignore if we like, uh, but at our peril. Uh, and uh, it, by ignoring them, uh, surely uh, under, uh, undermining much possibility of understanding the world that's likely to develop. Uh, there's a uh, leading principle of statecraft uh, which lies behind this refusal. It even has a technical name in the literature. It's called establishing credibility. Credibility means that uh, the subjects must know their place. Uh, uh, to establish credibility, you make it clear that you act without authority. So if a mafia don uh, wants to collect protection money, uh, he doesn't get a court order, you know, even if he could, because that would undermine credibility. It would imply that there is some authority, and there isn't. Uh, and the same holds in international affairs. If you look back at the arguments presented by uh, the United States and Britain for the bombing of Serbia, that was the argument. There were peripheral ones which didn't make sense, but the main one which did make sense was that it's necessary to maintain credibility. Others have to know their place uh, and that therefore uh, uh, the lack of uh, authorization is a crucial feature of, uh, of the response. Uh, the same incidentally was true of the matter of extradition. Uh, we don't know if it would have been possible to, for the U.S. to obtain the extradition of, uh, 
Osama bin Laden and his associates. There were indications that the Taliban were considering that, but the U.S. was very quick to cut off that possibility. They don't want extradition. Uh, extradition would again entail that there is a higher authority, like international law and uh, uh, standard procedures, and there isn't. Uh, you have to have the right to act unilaterally with uh, unlimited violence, uh, decisively, as you choose. That's credibility. Uh, unfortunately, that's the way the world works. That's what Tilly is describing and what we know very well from recent history. Well, the reaction to these two crimes, the September 11th and the aftermath, uh, that <clears throat> tells us quite a lot uh, about uh, what's likely to lie ahead uh, if the current tendencies do persist. Uh, the, the atrocities of September 11th are generally regarded as a historic event, and uh, that's true enough. But we should be clear about why. Uh, it's not because of the scale of the atrocities, unfortunately. Uh, in the civilian toll, the atrocities of September 11th are far from unusual uh, in the annals of violence that falls short of war. All too many examples. For example, the, uh, the number of people killed on September 11th is approximately the same as the monthly toll of uh, Iraqi children killed uh, as a result of the sanctions. It's been going on for 10 years. Uh, the number killed on September 11th is just a fraction of the uh, uh, civilian toll of the uh, one truly uncontroversial case of international terrorism in the recent years, namely the U.S. attack against Nicaragua, uh, uncontroversial in the light of uh, the judgment of the uh, highest international authorities, the World Court and the Security Council. It's true that all of this has been expunged from history, uh, as a result of the normal workings of power, uh, uh, but uh, it's tr it is history nevertheless, and not ancient history. In fact, the very the perpetrators of that crime, those condemned for that crime, happen to be the same people, by and large, who are now uh, uh, declaring uh, a new war on terrorism. Not an insignificant fact, nor is the fact that it's ignored. Uh, so the atrocities of September 11th are indeed a historic event, uh, but uh, not because of the scale, uh, rather because of the target. That's, in fact, something totally new. For the United States, this is the first time in, since the War of 1812, since 1814, when the British burned down Washington. It's the first time that the national territory has been under attack, or for that matter, under any threat. And there's some marginal ex exceptions, but that's basically true. Uh, Pearl Harbor Day yesterday had to do with attacks on U.S. colonies. The national territory has not been threatened or attacked. Uh, it's, uh, I won't bother to review what's been done to other people in the last, in the two centuries since uh, that you're familiar with, not very pretty. Uh, on September 11th, for the first time, the guns were pointed in the opposite direction. And that's a dramatic change, a truly dramatic change. So it is a historic event. And the same is true even more dramatically for Europe. Uh, Europe, of course, has suffered murderous destruction and wars, uh, but that's Europeans slaughtering each other. 
that's been the major sport of Europe for hundreds of years. Uh, meanwhile, the European powers uh, and their offshoots uh, conquered much of the world, uh, leaving a colossal trail of terror and destruction. But Europeans themselves were always safe from attack by their vic victims. The atrocities were somewhere else. Uh, and uh, again, there's rare and limited exceptions. So it isn't at all surprising in the light of hundreds of years of history that Europeans should be utterly shocked by the crimes of September 11th, which are a drastic breach of the norms of acceptable behavior of hundreds of years. Now, these are things we're supposed to do to them. They're not supposed to do them to us. Uh, and that's the historic change, which is real. Uh, it's also not surprising that Europeans and North Americans uh, should remain complacent, maybe mildly regretful, about the even more terrible suffering that's followed uh, September 11th. Uh, that dual reaction makes perfect sense. Uh, the victims of the second crime are, after all, just uh, uh, miserable Afghans, uh, uncivilized tribes, as Winston Churchill described them with great contempt when he ordered the use of poison gas to inspire a lively terror among them 80 years ago. Remember, that was the ultimate atrocity at that time after the Second World War. Uh, and that's typical. Uh, atrocities of that kind carry no moral stigma whatsoever, for one reason, because they're so familiar. Uh, even when uh, the only uh, motive is uh, no, no pre pretext other than just uh, greed or domination. And retribution knows no bounds. Uh, there's ample historical precedent for that, and there's uh, authority in the holiest texts that we're taught to revere. Uh, another reason for the complacent uh, acceptance of atrocities was explained quite eloquently by Alexis de Tocqueville in his classic study of democracy in America. Uh, uh, he, uh, he happened to be a witness, an eyewitness, of one of the great crimes of the cleansing of the continent, namely the expulsion of the Cherokees through the Trail of Tears, as it was called. And observing this terrible human tragedy, he, write, he wrote that he was particularly struck by the fact that the state terrorists could expel people from their lands and exterminate them without violating a single great principle of morality in the eyes of the world. It would be impossible to destroy people with more respect for the laws of humanity, he wrote. Uh, well, there could hardly be a more apt description of what's been unfolding before our eyes in the last couple of months. And its very easy acceptance just reflects the fact that it's normal. That's the way the powerful deal with the weak and defenseless. It's in no way remarkable, and therefore it's not surprising that it elicits virtually no comment uh, or concern. Uh, we don't have any right to, and we can choose to if we want, but we have no right to have any illusions about the premises that underlie current planning. That's the first factor that I mentioned with obvious uh, import for understanding the future. The uh, planning for the war in Afghanistan was based on explicit and unchallenged assumptions, which were quite clear and uh, forthright. The assumptions were that first the threat of bombing and then the realization of the threat would increase the number of Afghan 
uh, civilians at risk of death from starvation, disease, and exposure by about 50 percent uh, to about 7.5 million. So it would expose an additional 2.5 million people to the risk of, uh, <coughs> of uh, imminent death. Uh, there were, I'm sure you know, uh, pleas to stop the bombing, to allow the delivery of desperately needed aid. Uh, these were rebuffed without any comment, uh, mostly without even any report. And they came, they came from high UN officials, from the uh, major aid agencies, uh, from others in a position to know. Uh, by late September, so that's just before the bombing, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN had warned that more than 7 million people were facing starvation, uh, uh, would face starvation if the uh, threatened military action was undertaken. And right after the bombing began, uh, the FAO warned that uh, there would be, uh, warned of what it called a grave humanitarian catastrophe if this continued, and also advised that the bombing had disrupted the planting of 80% of the country's grain supplies so that the effects next year are likely to be even more severe, all passed without comment or interest. Uh, what will actually happen, or is happening, we don't know, and we probably will never know, uh, but we do know very well the assumptions on the basis of which the plans were laid and executed, and on the basis of which commentary about all of this proceeds. And I'll stress again that as a simple matter of logic, it's these assumptions that inform us about the shape of the world that lies ahead. It's the assumptions that tell us what's likely to happen, what may happen, we'll see. Uh, noth nothing I've just said is challenged in any way. It's blandly reported uh, or else ignored, uh, including the fact that uh, right now, at this moment, uh, virtually nothing is being done to bring uh, food and other aid to people who are dying in refugee camps and in the countryside, uh, even though the supplies are now available uh, and uh, nothing hampers delivery in much of the country except the lack of interest and will, which does hamper it, in fact, prevent it. Well, uh, for now, uh, the effects are basically unknown and they'll remain unknown, at least if history is any guide. Uh, so. Uh, the, these major atrocities just aren't reported today, scarcely reported. I find an occasional comment. And they're not going to be investigated tomorrow. Uh, today, it's, it is considered tolerable to report what's called collateral damage. Now, that means bombing error. And that's an inevitable cost of war. So you can report it and be sorry and it doesn't mean much. Uh, but what's not reported is the conscious and deliberate destruction of fleeing Afghans who are going to die in silence, uh, invisibly, and also not instantly. Uh, you don't die from starvation at once. Uh, people can survive um, you know, for months or a long time on roots and grasses. And if an, uh, a malnourished uh, infant dies of disease, uh, who's going to know or care what the cause was. Uh, in the future, the topic's off the agenda, uh, and that's because of a crucial principle of our intellectual culture. Uh, the principle is that we must devote enormous energy to meticulous accounting 
of the crimes of official enemies, and in that case we must quite properly include not only those literally killed, uh, but also those who die as a consequence of the actions. You're listening to Noam Chomsky uh, giving a speech on the war in Afghanistan and the shape of the world since 9-1-1. If you'd like to get more information on our Chomsky videotape, you can call 1-800-926-3921. That's 1-800-926-3921. We're going to come back to Professor Chomsky's speech in just a minute here on the War and Peace Report. Hey, superpower, while you're hunting your phone, the bombs you drop are killing people below. Winter is coming, cold wind and snow, a nation of starvation now with nowhere to go. And what the wise will say now, I think you should know, in the end you got to reap what you sow, so. So don't reap the reaper, you take revenge and the cycle goes deeper. But don't reap the reaper, you got to be your brother's keeper. When you decide now, hunt down those who sin, you cast a thousand stones and you're becoming like him. In afferent eye, in ten thousand times, revenge upon revenge and now the whole world goes blind. You're flying high now, but there's someone below you Living down there, and this is how they're gonna know you So take a look down, turn the other cheek But don't drop that bomb, my first support and release Don't Reap the Reaper by James George and the Earthlings I got this uh, CD from one of our listeners at... Uh, in San Francisco this weekend, KPFA listener, uh, James George, songs about current events. You can get more information at www.premiering.tv. You are listening to the War and Peace Report and welcome your musical contributions. At uh, Just email us at mail at democracynow.org. That's M-A-I-L at democracynow.org. As we return now to Professor Noam Chomsky on the shape of the world since 9-1-1. And we have to take equally scrupulous care to avoid this practice in the case of our own crimes uh, in the style that uh, de Tocqueville described. There are hundreds of pages of detailed documentation uh, illustrating documenting how these principles are applied in practice, and I suppose it's a historical universal. Uh, It would be a very welcome surprise if the current case turns out different, and we should remember that we're not uh, observing this from Mars, and we're not talking about crimes of Genghis Khan. There's a great deal that we can do about all this right at this moment, if we choose to. Uh, Well, to explore what's likely to lie ahead from a different perspective, uh, let's ask whether there was an alternative to the resort to devastating force at a distance, uh, a device that comes quite naturally to those who have overwhelming power, no external deterrent, and confidence in the obedience of articulate opinion. I'll assume here what is not obvious, that they know the perpetrators. So given that assumption, were there alternatives? Well, there were alternatives, quite obvious ones, and quite prominently suggested, for example, by the Vatican uh, or by uh, 
the most eminent uh, Anglo-American military historian, Michael Howard, and by quite a few others. The alternative is to identify the perpetrators, the likely perpetrators, uh, produce credible evidence, and turn to appropriate international authorities to bring the crimes to justice. Uh, could that have worked with <clears throat> without the resort to massive violence? Well, we can't know for sure, of course, because it was never tried, uh, but it very possibly might have. We don't have any way of knowing whether the uh, tentative offers by the Taliban uh, to do just that were serious. Uh, we don't know because they were instantly dismissed uh, for the reasons I already mentioned. To pursue that option would have been to undermine credibility, and therefore they were dismissed, and we don't know if it would have worked. Uh, are there any precedents for pursuing a lawful course? Yeah, there are plenty of precedents. Uh, some of them, again, are uncontroversial, like, say, Nicaragua. Uh, recall that the uh, terrible crimes, uh, the terrorist crimes in Nicaragua were far worse than even September 11th that left uh, tens of thousands of uh, people killed, the country virtually destroyed, may never recover. And so after the U.S. <clears throat> took over again in 1990, it's declined still further quite sharply. It's now the second poorest country in the hemisphere after Haiti. Uh, Haiti, you might recall, is the prime target of U.S. intervention in the 20th century and the poorest country in the hemisphere. Uh, Nicaragua and Guatemala vie for the honor of being the second uh, poorest countries in the hemisphere, and they're also vying for the honor of being second in terms of U.S. intervention. That might suggest some lessons, but you'll look uh, hard to find them, and it generalizes, incidentally. Uh, Nicaragua did not regard, react to the terrorist atrocities by setting off bombs in Washington. What they did is go to the World Court. They won their case, went to the Security Council, received endorsement uh, in a vetoed resolution, of course. Uh, went to the General Assembly, where again in successive years they received virtually unanimous endorsement. U.S. and one or two client states opposed. Uh, they were stymied by the rule of force. The U.S. simply dismissed the uh, uh, orders of the World Court to terminate the international terrorism and pay, uh, pay uh, substantial reparations, and in fact immediately re reacted by escalating the war. And there was nothing Nicaragua could do about that, at least nothing lawful. Uh, however, if the uh, United States were to pursue the same, uh, the same course, uh, there wouldn't be any barriers. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, the barrier is simply that that would undermine credibility, and therefore you can't do it. Uh, also, in this case, there would be the slight problem of providing evidence, which in Nicaragua had no problem making a case that the court accepted. It wouldn't be so simple in this case. Uh, well, uh, these, uh, I, sh I should say that the Nicaragua case is by no means the most extreme example of uh, international terrorism and state terrorism during that period, unfortunately. Uh, but it is uh, important, crucially, because it's the, un it's the most uncontroversial case. It is totally uncontroversial, uh, at least among people who have a minimal respect for uh, international law. Uh, human rights and treaty obligations. Again, uncontroversial because we can just appeal to the uh, 
judgment of the World Court and the Security Council and the General Assembly. That's the highest appeal. Uh, we can estimate the, uh, the scale of the, the size of the category of people who have a minimal respect for uh, human rights and international law. That's very easy. There's an easy test of that. I just ask how often any of these obvious facts have been brought up or even alluded to uh, in the huge flood of uh, uh, material that's poured out in the last couple of months about uh, international terrorism and what one should do about it. Uh, uh, and recall that the war against terrorism, the new war against terrorism, is being conducted by the condemned criminals, uh, the criminals who were condemned for international terrorism, often the very same people. Uh, and uh, they are the ones who are ignoring the precedent uh, that was established by their own victims of international terrorism. Well, that suggests some uh, conclusions uh, about uh, where the world is heading. I think they're obvious enough, so I don't have to comment on them. Actually, if you look more closely, it's even more grotesque. Uh, well, I mentioned a few of those who had suggested alternatives. I haven't mentioned the most important of them. The most important place to look, of course, is the people of Afghanistan. What, what do they suggest? Well, that's a pretty difficult question to answer, but it's not impossible. There's some obvious places to look. So, for example, there has been, at last, some, uh, some attention, finally, uh, to the, uh, some concern for the fate of women uh, in Afghanistan, even reached as far as the First Lady. Uh, maybe it'll uh, someday be followed by comparable concern for the plight of women elsewhere in Central and South Asia, which unfortunately is not all that different. Uh, we should bear in mind it is not all that different from life for women under the Taliban. There's plenty of highly credible evidence about that if you want to look. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, there, uh, there is uh, an organization of courageous women who have been uh, leading the struggle uh, to defend women's rights and to uh, uh, establish a democratic government. Uh, they've been doing it for 25 years. That's ROWA, the Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan. And they've done quite remarkable work over these 25 years. Their leader was assassinated by an Afghan collaborator with the KGB back in 1987, but they continued their work uh, within Afghanistan and uh, uh, in exile. And they've been quite outspoken, you know, not quiet. Uh, so, for example, they issued a public statement on October 11th, it's a week after the bombing began. The uh, headline, the heading of the statement is, Taliban should be overthrown by uprising of Afghans. Uh, and then goes on like this, says, again, again, due to the treason of fundamentalist hangmen, our people have been caught in the claws of the monster of a vast war and destruction. America, by forming an international coalition against Osama and his Taliban collaborators, and in retaliation for the 11th September terrorist attacks, has launched a vast aggression against our country. Despite the claim of the United States that only military and terrorist bases of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda will be struck, 
and that its actions would be accurately targeted and proportionate. We've witnessed for the past seven days, what we have witnessed leaves no doubt that this invasion will shed the blood of numerous women, men, children, young and old of our country. And of course, the fate of the refugees is even worse. Then it goes on to call for uh, a mass uprising to eradicate the plague of the Taliban, uh, an uprising carried out by the people of Afghanistan, not foreign interests, uh, who will perpetrate the plague in some other form they expect. And they're not alone in that. So before he entered Afghanistan, apparently without any Western support, then was captured and killed, uh, the Afghan opposition leader, Abdul Haq, who was very highly regarded in the West, uh, he condemned the bombing publicly and openly. He criticized the United States for refusing to support the efforts by him and by others to, and quoting him now, to create a revolt uh, uh, within the Taliban. The bombing, he said, was a big setback for these efforts. Uh, he claimed to have established uh, contacts with second-level Taliban uh, commanders, ex-Mujahideen, tribal elders, and, to have and he went on to discuss some detail uh, how such efforts could proceed. And he called on the United States to help, but with funding uh, and other such support, not with bombing, which was setting back the efforts. Uh, that same message was conveyed by a gathering of a thousand Afghan leaders in Peshawar and Pakistan at the end of October. Uh, some of them had trekked in from Afghanistan across the border. Uh, others were exiles. Uh, they were all committed to overthrowing the Taliban. Uh, it was, uh, the New York Times described it as a rare display of unity among tribal, uh, tribal leaders, Islamic scholars, fractious politicians, and former guerrilla commanders. And they unanimously, uh, uh, urgently demanded that the United States stop the air raids. They appealed to the international media to call for an end to the bombing of innocent people and to stop the destruction of Afghanistan. They disagreed on a lot, but they were unanimous about that. They called for other ways to overthrow the hated Taliban regime, uh, the same ways that were called for by Rawa and by Abdul Haq, uh, and they believed that to be possible without the mass slaughter and destruction that the West would prefer. Well, maybe uh, Afghans who've been struggling for freedom and for women's rights uh, for many years, maybe they just don't understand anything about their country and they should just cede responsibility uh, to foreigners who couldn't have placed the country on a map a couple of months ago, uh, led by commanders uh, who were condemned for international terrorism by the highest international authorities and supported by a coalition of leading terrorist states. Maybe, but it's not entirely obvious. Uh, actually, it's, uh, it's, it's quite uh, reminiscent of the Iraq War. Uh, not only that, but take that one. Uh, you recall, I'm sure, that the, uh, during that period, the Iraqi opposition, which is strong and outspoken, they were scrupulously barred from the media, 100%, and journals of opinion, apart from dissident journals way out at the margins. Uh, the, uh, and there was a reason for that. They opposed the U.S. bombing. 
and they accused the United States of preferring a military dictatorship to overthrow of Saddam Hussein by an internal revolt. Uh, not only did they say that, but that fact was confirmed. Uh, it was conceded, in fact, publicly uh, after Bush, Bush number one, uh, collaborated with Saddam in brutally crushing uh, a revolt in March 1991. That's right after the war was over when the U.S. had total control. Uh, uh, official U.S. spokesman at that time confirmed that the Bush administration would have no dealings with Iraq's opposition leaders. Uh, we felt that political meetings with them would not be appropriate for our policy at that time. That's the State Department spokesman Richard Boucher on March 14, 1991, right at the moment while Saddam was massacring uh, uh, southern rebels with tacit U.S. support. Uh, that had been long-standing government policy, incidentally, uh, and it's not unusual. And there's good reasons for it, and the reasons were explained. Uh, they preferred the, US, the diplomatic correspondent of the New York Times, Thomas Friedman, accurately said, without criticism, that uh, the U.S. preferred an iron-fisted Iraqi military junta that would rule Iraq uh, the same way Saddam Hussein did, but under a different name, because the name was embarrassing, and therefore it was necessary to massacre the rebels. Uh, the, uh, it's not unusual, uh, it's being relived in the past few months. Uh, it's uh, this uh, reje rejection of a possibly feasible uh, diplomatic options, that runs right through the, uh, the uh, wars of the 1990s. Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, leading scholar and critic of U.S. foreign policy, author of many books, including 911, just published by Seven Stories Press. If you'd like to get more information on a videotape of Noam Chomsky's speech, you can call 1-800-926-3921. That's 1-800-926-3921. Three nine two one. Give a gift of information to someone in this holiday season. You can also go to our website at democracynow.org. That's www.democracynow.org. That does it for today's program, Democracy Now! in Exiles, produced by Chris Abrams, Brad Simpson, Miranda Kennedy, with help from Lizzie Ratner. Anthony Sloan is our music maestro and engineer. Errol Maitland at the helm at WBIX.org. Thank you to KPFA and affiliate station KFCF in Fresno. It was wonderful to be out with the whole Democracy Now! crew this past weekend. To all the Pacifica affiliates around the country, we are Pacifica. Thanks to our hosts here at Downtown Community Television as we broadcast on Dish Network, channel 9415. That's free speech TV. 24-hour channel, also on public access cable stations around the country and on uh, the internet and on shortwave radio, Radio for Peace International. Democracy Now! in Exile is broadcasting in exile from the embattled studios of WBAI, from the studios of the band and the fire, the studios of our listeners. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening to another edition of the War and Peace Report. Day, all we got to do is listen.